0: Welcome to Red Flag Radio, the podcast of Red Flag Newspaper here in Australia, broadcasting out of Melbourne. My name is Rose Ward. I'm the host of the show. And we record the show on Indigenous land that we acknowledge, that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So the podcast that we produce, Red Flag Radio, is a platform to host discussions and analysis of politics, history, theory and activism from a revolutionary socialist perspective. So... In doing that, um, we don't receive any funding from advertisers, certainly not from any corporations. (laughs) And um, that's why we've started to ask for your support through Patreon, patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. And I want to thank the people who have already um, become Mm. Patreons of the show. It's really very much appreciated. And um, the producer of the show here is Liam Ward, who's an RMIT lecturer, socialist activist and filmmaker And he's written extensively on the history of anti-Chinese racism here in Australia and radical Chinese labour history that's definitely well worth checking out. It's online, in the online edition of the Marxist Left Review, which is the theoretical journal associated with um, Red Flag and Socialist Alternative. Um, Me and Liam both (laughs) share the same uh, surname Ward, but um, somebody inquired if we were related or not.
1: We're not, as far as I know. Do you you know anything? I don't know. I mean, I have... uh... You know, ancestors of whoever came in the 19th century from Ireland.
0: Mm. It's a pretty common name, actually, I in the, so, yeah. in Britain and Ireland. But as far as we know, we're not related. So, this is not some sort of... Um, <laughs> I don't know what that would imply. But anyway, <laughs> I'd be happy to be related to you, Liam.
1: Ah, uh, same. I mean, so, to you, not to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, so, this episode is um, going to be a pretty good one, I think. Um, we're talking to Ben Hillier, who's the contributing editor one of the contributing editors of Red Flag, the newspaper, who's currently on his second trip to Hong Kong to report on the democracy movement there. We spoke to Ben back in November on the show and when the situation was really kind of um, heightened. The students were occupying their campuses. The protest movement was really escalating and um, it was a pretty um, yeah, exciting but also um, potential turning point for the whole thing. And so if you haven't listened to that episode where Ben is talking to us on the phone from Hong Kong uh, in November, check that one out maybe before you listen to this one or just whatever, do whatever you want to do, but that's a recommendation. And we just wanted to recap quickly what we're talking about and with the Hong Kong protest Mm -hmm. movement. So the first big protest, and this is pretty incredible, um, was on June the 9th last year when they had over a million people out on the streets. That's more than eight months ago now. Mm Um, which was a response initially to the extradition bill um, trying to be imposed by Carrie Lam, who's the chief executive of Hong Kong, which would have meant if it had gone through, and it has been withdrawn completely now actually, but it would have meant that people from Hong Kong could have been um, sent to China for trial. And one of the things about that, not just people's fears about what that might mean in terms of the judicial process that they would be afforded in China, was that it's sort of a seen as a kind of a slippage towards Chinese rule in Hong Kong and the idea that since the British rule in Hong Kong, colonial rule, was ended in 1997, the idea is supposed to be that there's one country, two systems, and Hong Kong's supposed to be able to have its own independent system from China, even though in 2047, which gets closer and closer, Mm. um, nobody exactly knows, but basically the idea is that China just rules completely over Hong Kong. So, This extradition bill was sort of seen as symbolic of that slippage towards, well, China just runs everything now and people are very aware of the fact that Carrie Lam has to be approved by um, the Communist Party in Beijing and so on. So the protests continued and uh, and escalated and their demands broadened to really a a pro-democracy movement, which we as revolutionary socialists support in Hong Kong. Students have been involved in the university um, protests and occupations on the campus and um, the police that had formerly been apparently the, mo- <laughs> the most popular police force in Asia or something and now the most hated. Mm. Um, so a lot of political lessons have been learned. It's a really interesting um, movement from a revolutionary socialist perspective. So Liam, I know you've been following it closely as well. What what do you think are some of the key lessons or the reasons why we're so interested and in, in, involved in supporting um, this movement?
1: I reckon there's a bunch of lessons we can draw out which i'll try to just skip over quickly um but there's also i guess i want to i'll come back and make a more kind of fundamental point about the importance of this struggle in terms of uh you know it, its contribution to history actually uh, and so some of the lessons i think that are sort of timeless uh but we need to keep reminding ourselves and Hong, you know hong kongers have reminded us in in droves uh are that uh you know mass action works mass resistance works uh, uh resistance on a mass scale involving millions of people can actually Uh, force even the most dictatorial governments to back down from, uh, you know, you can force them to do things they didn't want to do and back down from agendas that they're trying to push. Um, You know, we obviously in 2019, we saw that around the world. Um, Hong Kong, I think was one of the kind of highlights of that in the sense that it was, you know, the most sustained and the kind of, you know, the one that sort of, um, you know, they were up against incredible odds, you know, where uh, that, that handover in 2047 is, is, you know this kind of impending totalitarian mm-hmm. state, and they're just their back is against the wall, and they are not going down without a fight. You know, and that sort of heroism, I think, uh, is one of the lessons. In terms of specific things, there's stuff like that that touches on some of the debates that we have uh, in in movements around the rest rest of the world too about, um, you know this this. Sometimes you get these people who, you know, are kind of averse to anything that involves physical confrontation because, you know, oh, you'll scare off these imaginary supporters who Mm. won't like the violence. You know, like, this has always been rubbish. Not that we want to go around smashing things just for the sake of it or whatever, but but actually what Hong Kong proved is that if you're prepared to resist the cops when they confront you with violence, if you're prepared to use violence in return, it doesn't scare off people. In fact, it can bring people to your side. And we saw that time and time again uh, throughout 2019 that people, ordinary, you know, old, you know, old pensioners living in the apartment blocks who were like, yeah, I support the violent young kids, you know, and I'm yeah. going to come down and feed them and give them shelter from the tear gas, you know, and we saw those sorts of things over and over again. Um, the other thing I think that is important in terms of the, the particular lessons from Hong Kong is that, yeah you know, the stuff around um, the value or the urgency of being just persistent, you know, of not giving in, like... Really, that's the thing. That's the thing that should be inscribed on the banner of the Hong Kong protest. You know, we are the ones who were fucking tireless. We went and went and went, and we did not stop for you know nearly a year now, um so that you know persistence is is always part of it because these struggles aren't easily. You know you can't bring down governments overnight. you know, you actually do need something that some way of um you know being in it for the long haul, and I think Hong Kong proves that. In terms of the broader historic stuff that I kind of flagged, though what we look at when we see, uh, hong kong and especially as you say as 2047 gets closer and closer uh, this this region hong kong you know hong kong as a sort of you know semi autonomous zone or whatever will eventually become fully encroached into china and that uh, that resistance that that has broken out in hong kong in the last 12 months will not you cannot put that back in the bottle you know this is a generation who have who have had the experience of mass collective resistance who have learned how to fight uh, and who and who have not given up on their on their demands, you know, like that that even if things can seem to peter out from time to time, and the you know the struggle ebbs and flows. Uh, there's a generation now who have been schooled in that. When you know, as China becomes the you know the next big superpower in the world, the main imperialist rivals to the US, and all of that, and all of the Cold War stuff, Cold War, uh, all of the elements of the Cold War sort of stuff start unfolding around the world or continue unfolding. Um, what happens in the class struggle in China will become important for all of us around the world. Um, you know, and, and we don't pick a side in that imperialist rivalry, um, but we do pick a side in terms of, you know, the international working class. And uh, when the working class in China moves, at some point in future, they will. They will move against that government, you know. That will happen. Mm. Uh, and when it does, the generation who fought in Hong Kong in 2019 will be at the forefront of it. You know, like, this is a very important first kind of straw in the wind of the coming Chinese revolution. And so it matters for history. Mm. So, we have
0: Ben Hillier on the phone who is in Hong Kong right now. Ben is a contributing editor to Red Flag and has written on the situation and, and has written a couple of articles now, one and one that will be very soon up on the Red Flag website that everyone should um, have a read of. And obviously, the situation has changed quite dramatically since November and the coronavirus um, taking off. In the last few weeks. So, Ben, you're in Hong Kong right now. Last time when you arrived, there was a sense um, of the protests kind of being the main thing that people were talking about. What has been the situation since you arrived in Hong Kong? What was your kind of first impression as you landed and sort of started talking to people?
2: Well, as you say, Roz, dramatically different, uh, at least for the time being this, this time around. Last time, uh, the place was exploding, and the streets were uh, mayhem uh, with with protests and confrontations with police. It's a lot quieter uh, at at the moment. A lot of people staying at home. The schools are shut. The universities are shut. The museums are shut. Um, the the government is telling people. Not to go out and have dinner together because the, the whole family is infected after having a hot pot. Some expert um, uh, on uh, communicable diseases is telling people if you must go out and eat, uh, don't face each other and if possible, don't talk. Um, so right. there's there's yeah. a lot of panic. There's been runs uh, on uh, on toilet paper, rice, uh, perishables. There's not enough masks. There's no hand sanitizer. Um, so a, a lot quieter in that regard. Um, one of the first things I did when I uh, when I got here was to go back and visit uh, the Chinese University of Hong Kong, uh, which was the site of one of the most important student occupations, and then uh, again off to the Polytechnic University of Hong Kong, which became the epicenter of, uh, of a massive police siege um, uh, right at the peak of the, of the movement before District Council. Uh, elections back in November, um, and even with the the, the shutdown of, uh, of many of the institutions here, it's quite clear that the administrations have taken control of of the campuses in quite a serious way. They they do not want to see a repeat um, of the student occupations or really the movement itself taking a hold on the campuses. So the Polytechnic University, the barricades are up again, but these are not barricades from the protesters, the administration's got barricades and security guards at the entrances um, checking everybody that goes in. They've put in um, uh, turnstiles uh, which are basically like you you would see when you're going to a metro train station either here or same same as in Melbourne uh, or or any city around the world where uh, only those with a, a student card or a staff card can get through and if you don't have one of those things or potentially an alumni card. If you don't have one of those things, you have to register with security. So, really tight monitoring now of anybody going to the campuses, um, which which is important in a sense because the – the, the struggle in November, a lot of the people on the campuses were there in solidarity. The estimates from participants were anywhere between thirty to fifty percent mm-hmm. of the occupations were were students, and up 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 to seventy percent were alumni, locals, uh, activists from the suburbs, etc., just coming to help out um, in a serious way. Uh, so. Where you had um, the checks being carried out by students, now you've got checks being carried out by security. Where you had medical stations set up by students uh, to tend to the wounded coming in from the confrontations, now you've got administration uh, uh, checkpoints uh, or hastily uh, set up uh, medical checkpoints that are related to the coronavirus where well, you've had the uh, the administration of Carrie Lam, the chief executive, put a, a, a mask ban on in the city last year, mm. which they're still trying to enforce in a way. Now you've got everybody in masks yeah. and at the Polytechnic University there's a poster up saying make sure you wear your mask properly. <laughs> um, so everything's sort of turned upside down. It's very rare to see anybody without a mask on the street, um, even though they are in short supply, but people are wearing them for longer than they should um, because because of the panic that's ta- that's taken mm-hmm. hold here.
0: So, is the general sense around um, the virus that people are um, just very scared and concerned about it, or is there any sense of anger around why is the government not providing us with masks for free? You know, the situation with the kind of um, underfunded healthcare in one of the richest. Cities in the world is, is there any sense that people are finding it frustrating and kind of directing any of that against the government in Hong Kong, or is it just we're scared and we just put our heads down and try to get through it?
2: Uh, It's—it's it's both. The anger is palpable, and—and they—they can't be. You can't disconnect the anger from the fear. Um, everything needs to be viewed, but. Through two lenses, really. One is the the SARS outbreak, the, um, uh, which happened in in two thousand and three. A, a total cover up by Beijing. It, it crept in to Hong Kong, killing two hundred and ninety nine people. Uh, midway through the crisis, people still didn't know what was going on. It was so badly mishandled, mm. um, uh, and, and the the memories of that just linger. Which is partly why we, we're seeing that the panic buying uh, and runs on supermarkets because people it's very fresh in people 's memories that when you're dealing with an invisible enemy that there isn't much information on uh, many people could end up dying if it breaks in into into the city and so there's a lot of um a lot of conspiracy theories or or misinformation as well like every person you you talk to has a different bit of information they've picked up from somewhere that you know that it's worse than SARS, that the, the, the coronavirus has already mutated, uh, that it's a conspiracy of the government uh, to kill the pro-democracy movement, um, et cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. So the fear is real. Uh, the, the anger is also um, uh, the anger's also there partly, again, the, the SARS that 17 years on. Uh, there is clearly the territory is utterly unprepared for what is an, a new outbreak on the mainland that was thoroughly predicted by all leading medical experts and yet nothing has been done by the government to prepare for it. The, the fact that masks have been running out and selling at exorbitant rates um, because, you know, let the market work, we don't have government stockpiles of uh, in, in, important... Uh, medical supplies. Um, it's just creating absolute anger, and it's it's not just it's not just the the, the opposition groups. Even some of the pro government people seem to be pretty upset with the way the government's handled it. Mm. Um, so so that's yeah, pretty pretty much universal, and it, it d- doesn't help the government uh, that it's just been through six months of this massive opposition campaign. In which its authority was incredibly damaged, precisely because uh, it, it it's 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 a puppet of, of Beijing is widely seen to be a puppet of Beijing, um, and has done has made absolutely no concessions um, to people's want to have democratic elections in in the territory.
0: Mm. And in terms of the protest movement, I mean, one of the things that has been a feature, particularly in Hong Kong, if you compare it to some of the other kind of global struggles that have, that broke out in 2019 is the fact that there's there's no particular organization or group of people or formal kind of network even that has kind of coordinated and led the protests there's been the student occupations which have had their own kind of structures and so on but even then the descriptions that you gave of how they were organized seem pretty like a lot of people sort of autonomously working out what to do and doing it together so in a situation like this where everyone is kind of scattered back into their own homes, how how does any kind of organizing or even communication between people who are involved in the movement continue? Is it continuing? Have you spoken to people and where does that stand?
2: Um, it, it's on the back burner um, uh, and depending on who you talk to, it, it's either that it's somewhat of a detente because of of the virus and people are pretty aware that gathering um, together in large numbers may not be the wisest thing to do at the moment anyway. Um, Others are saying that, well, it's actually not a bad time to have a bit of a rest, that the the virus outbreak itself um, is giving people a little bit of breathing space, people are exhausted, Um, and you've also got at the moment, they're the, the starting to proce- uh, process through the courts the 7,000 people that were arrested uh, last year um, during during the movement. Um, so th- it hasn't gone away. Everybody says as soon as this virus uh, is dealt with, it's going to be back. You know, we'll, we're everybody's saying it'll be back. We're, we're going to be back. It's just a bit of a timeout at the moment. There are still protests uh, occurring, Um, some of them now are related to the virus itself and the government's response, so hastily setting up quarantine zones in residential areas, um, like requisitioning uh, something that should have been a public housing block for quarantining, for example, made people absolutely ropeable. Why has the government not uh, thought of this in advance? Why are quarantine zones not being placed on government land why aren't they being placed in the areas where rich people are? Mm-hmm. Is another thing. Um, uh, but the the leaderlessness of the movement um, is clearly now actually becoming a, a weakness because the police have the police are, are now acting faster and harder against any uh, actions that have been occurring. So they, they come in very quickly. As soon as it looks as though people are deciding that they might march, as soon as a gathering looks as though it might become larger than anticipated, the police go in quickly uh, and with a, a fairly severe degree of violence if people attempt to resist. And that, um, from, from what I understand talking to people, that is actually one of the things that uh, the leaderlessness, um, uh, the... can't really cope with because the way that it used to work was people would gather when they had a critical mass and after a certain amount of time it was at that point that the frontliners would coalesce and move for the confrontation with the police and everybody else would then become sort of an auxiliary to help the frontliners and maintain a confrontation going you know, for hours into the evening and and, and, and into the next day. It's just, people are saying it's just impossible to do that when the cops move so fast and so hard. So the lack of coordination centrally or or otherwise um, means that the protest actions are are, are quite fundamentally hindered. It's a very useful tactic um, from the police. On the other hand, um, uh, it it is not winning (laughs) the police any favours. How much... That matters. I don't know. They'd already lost the, the you know, the war of, of public opinion last year. But it seems as though that people are getting even more pissed off with them because it's, you know, it, so, some of the gatherings now, it's, you know, it's old pensioners even that are mm-hmm. getting, there's footage of an old man pensioner who was just attempting to, you know, sort of, you could sense that he was just trying to walk somewhere and telling the police, like, just bloody well, leave me alone. And they Pepper sprayed him right in the face from, from like a metre away. Um, so some of these heavy-handed instances uh, are not helping public relations. And, and I think, like for the police, which, which is a, on one level a very good thing, but two, it, it should help. Like when people say, well, it's in a lull, we're going to be back, you sort of believe that, you know, that the anger that's there existing, uh, it is going to come to the, to the surface again once they feel that this um, uh, impending crisis or at least the 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 threat of uh, of, of an outbreak has passed well, exactly when that happens who knows because mm. the situation in china is um you know there's enough just the, the news now is another 5000 mm. cases and more than 100 dead um, yesterday
0: yeah
1: The of the are in
0: one of the other aspects that's come up, um, it's sort of one of the links between the protest movement and the coronavirus response, has been this strike at a hospital of workers who sort of refuse to be exposed to the conditions of potentially um, being, being contracting the virus. And the level of um, resources that were available where they worked, and so on. And it's also been reported um, before the coronavirus outbreak that people were um, joining unions in Hong Kong. So protesters and people were saying it's another tactic of the protest now that everyone should join a union. Which uh, you know, for us as socialists, was like, oh yeah, this is probably a good idea. Um, but do you have a sense of sort of what that? union activity looks like because there's obviously a section of the unions that are just kind of government-run unions, so they're not unions in the sense that we would want them to be. Um, and this strike has kind of been a test of some of that. Do you have any more details on that or a sense of where where that um, stands?
2: A, a, a little. Um, I, I was actually scheduled to meet with the, the chair of the health workers union um, but she hasn't been able to, so I'm just going to have an email exchange with her. So I, I'll know a bit more about the that strike um, come the weekend or after the weekend, which obviously doesn't help this podcast. Yeah. Uh, but what I what I do know of it is, well, yes, you, you're right that uh, there, there's long simmering questions about the conditions uh, 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 in, in the hospitals, that the ratios is uh, ratios are really. Um, not good. It's it's. Mm. I, th- I can't. I'm not sure what the ratios are in a place like Australia. I think the nurses have five to one or something. Is that is that their demand? I thought it was lower. I, I, I thought it was lower. Yeah. yeah, I thought
1: in Victoria was it, it was like was it four, four to one? one or something.
2: Maybe four all the to nurses one? Yeah. who are listening are
1: probably screaming at us right now. Yeah,
2: and <laughs> yeah, no, and and in reality, it's probably not that. Um, like I'm not sure, but here I read sixteen to one. So already, like quite a lot. You know, quite a lot of stress on medical staff. Uh, not enough beds, you know, hospitals at capacity, even before you even try and think about um, what would happen if a pandemic broke out, plus um, a a whole lot of questions about exactly how long the supplies will last, how many supplies the hospitals have, Um, uh, and, yeah, then the, the, the question of how the government is dealing with the crisis to prevent the pandemic Breaking out here as well. They've have all been issues in that strike. And it, interestingly, that that union and um, that that union only formed in the last few months uh, and ro- grew to twenty thousand very quickly. Um, I spoke to a, a man from the the Labor Party here yesterday. Uh, the Labor Party is only small. Like most political outfits here are actually quite small. There's not there's not a sort of party political culture in the island i think they only have about 200 members but they they won about seven seats out of the 400 odd in the district council elections last year uh he this guy works for for two of the unions that had a, a, a basically cleaning cleaning workers and uh environmental hygiene unions who had a press conference yesterday also about the lack of supplies and the, the dangers they feel that they're they're facing in, in their work um he said, for the first time, really in the island's history, that the, the proliferation of unions—something like a hundred new unions have been formed um, in the last uh, couple of months. Um, bearing in mind that you only need uh, seven people to register a union, so the, the total numbers—I'm I'm not sure of—in terms of exactly how many people join unions. But um, he said it's very noticeable that people are not joining. Um, on the basis of concern about wages or conditions at work, even though people do have concerns about them, people people are, jo- people are joining because, uh, as uh, as you mentioned, uh, they they see it as a, a one political mm. step they can take as part of the broader pro democracy movement. That this that joining unions is a way to have another front of pressure mm. put on the government for. The, the five demands. So that, that's an interesting development. I, I don't know because people are talking about it a lot here, um, just how significant it is, but I haven't been able to discern exactly how many people have, have joined. Mm-hmm. We, we only know that there are lots of unions have been formed mm-hmm. and this particular union, that the health services one, I mean that's, that's remarkable growth to go from basically zero to 20,000. Um, well, and then, uh, yeah. then pull off a political strike um, uh, within, you know, your first few months of, of existence. Um, that's that's quite significant.
0: It definitely seems to suggest a particular direction, and you know, we, the details will become clearer. And hopefully, you'll include something about it in in what you write um, in your next dispatch for Red Flag. But yeah, it's it's a definitely. As socialists, it seems like a positive move. Um, who else? Yeah, we can. We, yeah, I we guess can we can hope. only hope. Yeah. yeah. Who else have you been speaking to? Have you got any other um, stories you want to share with us of people that you've caught up with while you're there?
2: Um, sort of very various bits and bobs. Um, I ask. Uh, see, I, I end up asking everybody pretty much the same questions um, to try and get a feel for. Differences of opinion, etc. Of course, I've been speaking to Ao Lung Yu, um, who some of our listeners, I'm sure, are, are familiar with—a long-standing leftist, one of the only uh, leftists uh, left from the the '70s generation uh, here in the territory—who um, writes quite a bit on Hong Kong and China. Um, his his position is that <laughs> that the movement uh, and Bear bear in mind, he's uh, he has a, a bit of distance uh, f- uh, from from the movement, which is both has strengths and weaknesses. One, he's not in the thick of it. I mean, he is about seventy, so he's not going to be a frontliner. Um, but it also gives him the the distance, also gives him uh, the capacity to sort of stand back and evaluate uh, in a way that some others don't as well. It, his position has been that <laughs> the movement has been on a downswing. F- you know, since well before I arrived, even in November. Um, uh, not that it's terminal, but his sort of position is: well, the mass movement. Um, the, 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 you had mass uh, mass rallies of people uh, in coming out of June last year. The, the the decline of those was partly one of the reasons that the student rebellion was so um, wild in, in a way that the students. Uh, uh, and they acknowledged that themselves, the, the students and the young people, substi- they were substituting themselves for the lack of the mass movement. Also, you know, they, they also said that, well, the mass movement proved that the police would, you know, kick the crap out of you even if you are being peaceful, so they had to defend themselves. Um, and that, that, that stage of the movement now having also <laughs> retreated, at least for now, and... And the, the young frontliners, you know, last I was here, all, the, the lots of discussions about how they did not want to have a repeat of the Polytechnic siege when they, I think more than a thousand people were arrested and they, uh, you know, absolutely caned by by the police. They realised they didn't have the sort of firepower um, to uh, to take on the police like that again. And then they needed to change tack. Um, our sort of seems to think that well, that phase is gone, and what's coming out of that now is not really clear. Um, but it's it's sort of a if, if you look if you look at the phases of it, it's it's a down trajectory. Which uh, which, which as I say, he says that that may that may well be reversed. But it's precisely the the, the question of labour organising may well be a, a factor in that. If, 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 the, if this unionisation stuff happens and you start to get more strikes, well, that can start to change the character of it and also, in a sense, probably give it a, a, a lot more social weight mm. yeah, um, in terms of the, the pressure it can put on the government and its capacity to, to pull the, um, the, the territory to a, to a halt. Mm. so to speak. But, I mean, that's it's a long way off from that. I mean, so, some of the other people um, I speak to are just sort of the the, the random activists who've been involved uh, last year um, uh, but who are now, you know, as I say, sort of keeping their heads down. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to. There have been these protests against the quarantine zones in in a bunch of neighbourhoods. I found out about all of them way too late. So times that I've gone, they've all been totally over. Mm. That that would be an interesting um bunch of people to talk to mm. in some of those uh the public housing estates who are obviously riled up. Mm. And later today, again, not that great for your podcast, but I'm meeting with a a representative of the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions, which is sort of a pro-democratic confederation uh, as opposed to the pro-Beijing, uh, the much larger pro-Beijing straight federation of trade unions. Mm. Mm.
0: I mean, one thing to me that seems clear is even, the, even if that's true around the downward trajectory and the lessons that have been learned around um, the strategy of um, campus occupations and so on, that there's, it's not going to be nothing. That happens next. Mm. There'll be some form of struggle, whether that's through the trade unions or through the rebuilding of a mass street-based movement that's more or more centrally organised, or what, or something that we don't even know about yet. Um, and the fact that the government is not making itself any more popular through its handling of the coronavirus, the police, as you said, are becoming even less popular. If that, you know, people probably thought that wasn't possible, mm. but that is happening. So the you know, all the contradictions are there and the lessons and the people's um, frustrations and anger are still the same as they were before and that deadline to 2047 is getting closer every day. So it, do- it does seem to be a situation that socialists should definitely be following and, you know, will continue to follow on Red Flag Radio and in, and in Red Flag mm-hmm. newspaper as well. Is Is there anything you want to finish with, I- Ben, in terms of the future?
2: Well, I, 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 think your, I think your closing statement really, really sums it up. You're absolutely right. It's, it's not going away, um, precisely because the contradiction between uh, uh, millions of people's desire for self determination butts up against the increasing uh, incorporation of the territory and the encroachment of the Communist Party uh, in, into the territory. Uh, that, that contradiction doesn't go away. Uh, and the anger uh, has only built. So the question is, when and how does it blow next? And, and when I say downward trajectory, I mean that—that's that, sort of—that's that's that was our sort of broad, broad-based, you know, distancing mm. to sort of get, get impression of an overview. But you know, a week before I got here, there was 150,000 people at a mm. demonstration, and since I've been here, there have been protests almost every night. Um, it's, it's just when you measure it to, to November <laughs> anywhere else you'd be talking about something going on yeah uh, mm. it's, it's when you measure it against what's come before uh, that it seems to be you know a, a lot uh, that uh, a lot less um, or that just is a lot less I guess um, a- activity um, but that's again par- partly the the coronavirus has had a- an impact uh, on that um so it, it it'll be a wait and see, um but certainly at, at least according to uh, every person I've spoken to, nobody seems to be no nobody talks about demoralisation because that is a question I brought up like are people demoralized have people given up what's going on? everybody says no we're coming back mm. we're just mm. we're just biding our time so
0: which is amazing it, yeah.
2: It, mm. it, yeah it'll be it will be very interesting to see what what the next Phase holds um one one thing at the polytechnic this this doesn't pretend a, any new phase but i guess to give you a sense of the uh the anxieties of the authorities at least at the polytechnic as they're going through the cleaning the graffiti off the off the floors they've they've put canvas around the bollards that have all been graffitied because they can't get off there they're fixing it the garden beds are a fixed uh the cafeteria is back running and looking lovely um uh, but they've got the the one promotion that seems to be the key promotion that the administration is putting on uh that th- post is posters up for and they've got little banners going all the way along under a walkway it's a seed funding for uh, social activism 200,000 hong kong dollars for people who are uh <laughs> passionate social innovators who want to change the world. So <laughs> they desperately mm. fi- find creative new ways to make a difference, you know, like creative as in please don't dig up yep. paving stones and throw them at the police. Um Backed by the corporates, you know, the whole thing's so they, they're obviously aware that this mood is not going to be uh, not will not have um, gone away by the time the campuses finally resume once this uh, coronavirus par- panic is over. Um, and I'm sure there will be a whole series of, uh, you know, NGO oriented young people who have dreams of working for Oxfam or uh, being in the United Nations and things like that who will. will Will pursue the two hundred thousand dollars with an immense passion and creativity, uh, but it's the the legacy of last year is unlikely to wash off so quickly. Mm. Um, with such uh, a, 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 the temptation of the glossy posters and, and the money is, is not is not going to grip the imaginations of the tens of thousands of of young radicals yeah. uh, f- from last year. That that's for damn sure. Good. So,
0: well, Ben. Thank you so much for your time and I hope the meetings today go well and we look forward to hearing more about it in the pages and online in Red Flag.
2: Thanks again for having me. All and the best. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben.
0: You're listening to Red Flag Radio. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out our Patreon and also um, share on social media. Thanks, everyone. Uh, this is Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.